Have you what seen you, Promising Young, Young Woman yet? No, I have a date night tomorrow night to watch Promising Young Woman. Interesting. Great date night movie. Yeah, we all did that. It was really good for me. Yeah, me too. Good. <laughs> solid. <laughs> solid. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. I haven't seen it either. I have no idea what to expect coming coming into this, but uh, yeah, it'll be an interesting date night. I've it's going to be better than some of the date night movies I've had previously, which have included Blue Ruin, Prisoners, uh, <laughs> and I can't remember what the third one is. But oh, Blue Ruin really and bad. Prisoners. <laughs> it was a Black Mirror episode that that ended up terribly. <laughs> Yeah, I'm actually going to keep it now. I'm going to keep this whole segment because I really like this. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Not Your Father's Movies. I'm Vito. I'm Mike. And I'm Jesse. And we are the Dad Fathers coming at you with some far-going energy with a guest. <laughs> yes, we have a guest today. It's uh, our longtime mutual friend, extended member of my family, Phil. Hey, Phil, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Doing pretty good. Doing pretty yeah. good. So you like this movie. I do. A little bit. A little bit. That's which why movie? we have you on. <laughs> which movie? Yeah, which one? Oh, Fargo. It's Fargo. Yeah, everyone. Going it's far. Fargo from 1996, directed, written, produced, and edited by Joel and Ethan Cohen in various capacities, it both credited and uncredited, and then also under pseudonyms at different times as well. Right. I think they just like to keep it fun. I think they think it's really boring if you just see a credit list that's like, directed, the Coens, written, the Coens, produced, the Coens, edited, <laughs> the Coens. <laughs> uh, so they flip it around. They famously edit underneath their pseudonym, Roderick Janes. So anytime you see Roderick Janes, it's, it's the, the Coen brothers. Yeah. Not really sure why they do that. I'm sure there's a big story on it. Is it both uh, of them or just one? It's they, they usually say that like Joel Cohen usually gets the director credit and Ethan Cohen usually gets the screenwriting credit, but they both do it and they both do it at different times in different capacities. That's just like for DGA and WGA rules. Mm-hmm. It, it, and I think oh, they just have fun okay. with it now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause like duos, there's like a famously hard thing to do to be credited as a duo with the WGA it gets guild Hollywood bullshit. No one cares. Um, <laughs> but this is also produced by Tim Bevan and Eric Fellner, who we've talked about before. Big Hollywood heavyweights. They work a lot with British cinema, specifically with uh, Edgar Wright. This movie itself uh, was nominated for seven Oscars. Best editing, best cinematography, best director, actor in a supporting role, and best picture. And it won for best original screenplay and best actress. You know, our lovely is- Frances McDormand. Oh, absolutely. She deserved it. But who is um, the best actor in a sporting role? Uh, William H. Macy. Ooh. William H. Macy. And it, it's, yeah. looking at his filmography, it's really funny because this is a guy that we all recognize from being in a lot of stuff. But looking over his past 20 or so years, I'm like, wow, you do not pick good movies. <laughs> <laughs> like he's in Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Air Force One. And then 134 episodes of Shameless as Frank Gallagher. <laughs> <laughs> and everything else is completely forgettable. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. He's he's the he's the dad in Jurassic Park 3. Remember that? Whoa. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's right. they, they go to save the kid. He's oh, like, oh, yeah. You don't remember that? Yeah. He's, yeah. And then they hire what's his face to go back to the island or whatever. And he's like, I'm never going to go back. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. One last job. (laughs) (laughs) And then sort of our backing up our finishing up our cast list because it's a pretty small cast and there's some people are not in it very much, but we got uh, Steve Buscemi. Um, you oh. know him as the creepy gross dude from any role that required a creepy gross dude. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so before I actually got to introduce this movie to somebody while watching it this week, and I was telling him who was in it and stuff. And uh, for Steve Buscemi's character, it's just like you know, it's it's the guy with the big bug eyes. He's going to be in it. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, him. Yeah. <laughs> he looks like a human frog a little bit. Just big wet eyes. Yeah. Yeah, and he's he's fantastic. I, I love Steve Buscemi every time we see him. But oh, you know, him. you might know him. I mean, like he's going to be in all these. These are all future episodes. We yeah. got Monsters Inc. We got Armageddon. We got The Big Lebowski. We got Con Air. And then an episode we're never going to do Reservoir Dogs. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's been in a few movies that are you know, some people know him. Yeah, he's he's kind of known. He, he's also, I mean, like this is kind of a well-known trivia fact, but he's also he was a firefighter before he was a famous mm-hmm. movie star for being the creepy worst person in the movie yeah um but he uh on on 9-11 he went he went with his old crew to uh to the to the twin towers Mm -hmm. when they were fallen which is pretty cool he's a cool (sighs) dude so we can't make fun of him whatsoever (laughs) (laughs) he kind of honored those roots with uh when he's in king of staten island yeah um being the head of the the firefighting department there yeah it's actually kind of beautiful seeing it back on screen but then we have peter stormare playing uh a character that I didn't know had a name until I looked at, I've seen this movie a bunch guys. I've seen this movie a lot and I didn't know this guy had a name. It's like, it was like Grower. Is that his name? Jesse, do you have it? Um, no, I, I, sorry. I don't see it on the IMDb. It's okay. Gotta ask the secretaries. Uh, yeah, I got, I got it right here. Um, Gare Grimsvold. Gare Grimsvold. Gare Grimsvold. Which is not a name I heard a single time. No, no. He's just the stoic, constantly smoking man. Uh, but who, like Steve Buscemi, though, is in a ton of stuff. Also Armageddon, um, but also <laughs> Constantine, the Brothers Grimm. Remember him in Pain and Gain? No. Do you remember him in John Wick Chapter 2? Vaguely. Yeah, he's like always there. Yeah, he's like around. Yeah. Yeah. But- and correction, he's like listed number three on, uh, <laughs> on IMDb. I don't know why I just glanced over him. You know what's crazy, though? Looking at this IMDb list, uh, Francis McDormand isn't on here. Yeah, I don't know why that is. It seems it seems like an error. This is the movie she's known for. Uh-huh. Uh, the number one movie. Although, I mean, she's fantastic always. And this is just the first of her three nominations for a Best Actress. I think that sort of wraps up our cast list. But with crew, I do want to call out my main guy. I think our main guy. I think the dad cinematographer, the father of how we look at movies. It's Roger Deakins. Roger Deakins. Yes. Best known for a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The Deakins. The the Deakins Hour? Deakins Pod? Uh, Team Deakins. Team Deakins. Team Deakins. Deakins. That's it. Not best known for that. It's an incredible podcast. I think we've actually shouted it out before. Probably. A couple times. You know, you have a lot of sponsorship. You have, and I keep forgetting who these people are because I don't pay attention to anybody besides director or actors, or and maybe I'll recognize producers, but I never, for whatever reason, remember any cinematographers whatsoever. But let me let me just run down this list for right. you All right, to please. defend this point. Please, okay. So please Roger Deakins has been nominated fifteen times for an Oscar for Best Cinematography. Okay. So first one, Shawshank Redemption. Second one, Fargo. Third one, Kundin. 
Oh, brother, where art thou? The man who wasn't there. No country for old men. And the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Same year. 2007. Those two. Same year. Big year. Then The Reader, True Grit, Skyfall, Prisoners, Unbroken, Sicario. So that's 13 nominations. No wins. Then Blade Runner 2049, 2017 wins. 1917, 2019 wins. So it's it's the most. All right. I've heard of those movies. Or seen all them. of them. Yeah. <laughs> Heard of and seen most. Yeah, and, and they're they're all gorgeous. Yeah. Um, I think we'll be talking about Roger Deakins a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, we're gonna we're gonna do like half of those. Yeah. I yeah. I would hope I, I feel what? the same way. I I don't. Sorry. Nope. I, I was just you gonna go. say I, I I feel the same way, man. I I've never really paid much attention to cinematographers, but I've been trying to more because like 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 Vito said, these are the guys who have defined the way we've seen the, these movies that we love. Like he is the Coen Brothers guy, yeah. but he's also just the guy for these big kind of meaty movies. Um, yeah, and it's really cool to be able to see, like, hey, this is like this in this work of art. One of the most important aspects of it is the visual aspect of it. <laughs> it's how it looks. And so, yeah. like, paying attention to to who 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 did that. It's, yeah, it's. I think it's important. It's something I'm I'm working on trying to. I, I agree with you, but it also occurs to me that like. I only really know what an actor does and what a director does and mildly what a producer does, but I have no idea what a cinematographer actually does. That's why the team Deacons podcast is fantastic. (laughs) He will tell you at length and tell you specifically on what movies he did what for. It's actually really cool. Yeah. If you ever, if anyone ever wants to educate themselves on that, he's the guy you want to learn from. Phil, what do you think about cinematographers? (laughs) (laughs) Some, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big Conrad Hall fan. Do you think that Alan Pakula paints with darkness as much as light? I, I, I would have guessed a brush, but I don't really... <laughs> <laughs> but a dark brush or a light brush? That's the question. <laughs> that's good. That, that's why. That's why. That's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> to be the dumb bitch boy. <laughs> <laughs> It's because you're so effortlessly funny. And I know I can throw to you at any moment and you'll, you'll be ready with something. You uh, you have that good potential dad energy. You have one on the way, don't you? I do. Yes. Oh. Seven, two months to go, I think. And at the time this comes out, you'll have already welcomed the child. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That'll be amazing. Yes. Very exciting. And probably have already shown him this movie. Right? <laughs> it's, it's early, often, and loud. <laughs> <laughs> just want to make sure you get all the, the gunshots and uh, the comments about the uncircumcised nature of <laughs> oh man okay so that kind of wraps it up and we will be revisiting Roger Deakins a little bit more I just want to state here that um, this is kind of a weird movie for Roger Deakins like it's it's so bright like it's everything is so bright and that's kind of strange. Like he's not getting to use his like normal contrasting colors. It's it's like everything's white. Everything's white all the time or gray. Yeah, I would say there's I mean, there are a couple of scenes that stick out where there's a strong contrast, but it's between black and white. You know, the or the, the shot of the parking lot outside mm-hmm. of Wade's office building. Oh, mm-hmm. it's yeah. just oh, yeah. yeah, it's just this absolutely gorgeous shot. And it's just black and white. And it's something so ordinary that. That's probably one of my favorite shots in the whole movie. Absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah. And then that that scene in particular, it the way 
like it's capturing all the light posts at an angle and the car is going at almost the same angle and but everything is black and you see nothing. It looks like a dollhouse figure and you're not sure if it's real until you see Jerry walk on screen mm. and you, his little and you defeated see his little slumber. <laughs> yeah. He's so sad and so defeated marching to the car and then having to brush off the ice. That, that whole scene is beautiful. But I did read that for this movie, they were trying to go for the gloomiest look possible. And so they tried to film whenever there wasn't any sunlight. And there was one day there was sunlight. I don't know what scene this is, but whatever it is, they, they're like, this doesn't even really fit in the movie, but it's there anyway. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I was just thinking, you know, having spent some time around the Minnesota, North Dakota area extensively myself and you as well, Philip. Mm. It's not hard to find a gray day. <laughs> it's it's not, but the year they were filming this, like 93 or 94, I think, or maybe it's 94, 95, it was like abnormally sunny. Like that sucks. The, like the hottest year on record or whatever. And so they were having a hard time finding gray days. Wow. Finding even snow, right? Like didn't I, I was didn't they have to use like fake snow at times? That sounds well, right. Well, I don't know. Tell me about that, Mike. <laughs> I think they did. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read that. <laughs> so you know that, like, you know, some podcasts have the segment of half-ass internet research. This is like no-ass. It's just pure speculation. <laughs> I saw a meme that I think I read correctly. <laughs> really late. I was tired. I, don't know. I was on the toilet. Like. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, so maybe wanting to talk about some of the reasons we love this movie. We can talk about some of our favorite scenes, guys. Oh, yeah. Wait, um, are we going to do nostalgia, though? Oh. Yeah, we got to totally do some nostalgia, nostalgia and, and like some, oh, yeah. some is this a dad movie, don't we? No, that's Wait, no, end. no. Would you say your kids? <laughs> Sorry. We are happening? all over the place. <laughs> listen? It's a little. Do we? <laughs> never we heard to our own episodes. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, Mike, since you remembered. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, my nostalgia for this movie, I don't actually have a ton. I, I've i only seen it, I don't know, t- maybe three times. Um, and the first time I saw it, it was a late night. I had been out late, and I came back. And I was going through this phase when I would like have a few to drink, and I'd come back to my, my room and be like, you know what? I haven't seen a movie that's deep and serious for a while. So I'm going to do that. Um, and I'd watch it and I didn't fall asleep in them, but I remember them like halfway. Yeah. Um, because I was like halfway falling asleep. Yeah. You're hazy. Yeah. So really? Like, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Like what's going on? Um, but so this one was pretty striking because it's, you know, it's Fargo and there's a lot of things that are shocking in it, but then uh, watching it again, but I, I couldn't really like, judge it like is this a good movie i was like i don't know it's it's a movie uh, but then i saw it again later i thought like this was this was incredible so yeah that's my nostalgia for it really what about you phil well um i came to this movie sophomore year of college which was the year uh i lived under a desk in my room <laughs> and watched movies while pining for the woman who is now my wife that was a good phase for you. Yeah. That, was, that was a fun time. Yeah, that really fun worked fun out for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I absolutely loved it. It was, you know, it was equal parts comforting, you know, hearing the accents of my relatives, um, <laughs> but also, you know, provocative in that 
it displays the most egregious human behavior possible. And, and um, for a long time, and we could talk about it later, but I, I thought Marge Gunderson was the best character ever captured on film. Um, and I, you know, she's pretty awesome. Yeah. Who doesn't I mean, love Marge? Yeah. 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 Words fail me. <laughs> how about you jesse Where, where'd you come at this from i think i watched it when i was like 10 or 12 um, holy cow <laughs> what the hell I, I don't know maybe maybe he's more like 12 or 14 i don't know <laughs> all those years kind of blur together but like a lot I of older scenes. brothers yeah a lot of older brothers and a dad who loved to show these sorts of movies and a mom who definitely never wanted me to see this movie my mom hates this movie with a passion um, oh, really? my, my mom mm-hmm. too. My mom yeah. too. Yeah. It's because it's bloody and violent and the, the wood chipper scene just gets her. So it, it grosses her out so much. She refuses to have anything to do with this. And she didn't want me to have anything to do with it, but I think I snuck in to saw some, to see some parts or whatever. And I definitely saw the wood chipper scene. And I was really <laughs> gross. It was really gross at the time. I was young enough yeah. for that to be like, Ooh, no, that's terrible. This is really dark. And, Awful. And I didn't like Fargo for a very long time. And then I saw it again in college and liked it. And then a couple more times in my adult life. And then again, more recently, and every time I've seen it successively, I've seen it uh, in like a new light. And I really, really liked it more every time I've seen it. So I really like this movie at this point. Very nice. Cool. I feel the same way, man. Like every single time I see it, it's like, oh, this is really good. I was like, oh, no, 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 this is really, <laughs> this is really good. Yeah. You know, every time. Exactly. Yeah. That's, a, that's where I'm at at this point. But how about you, Vito? Where, where are you at with nostalgia? This was the second Coen Brothers movie I ever saw. The first one being No Country. Because, you know, we're, we're of the age where that is like the kind of primer a little bit. That's mm. the one where like the Coens become the biggest deal. And I saw that one in college. And then immediately after that, I watched Fargo. And uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't love it at first because I grew up hearing so much about it. You know, I, I grew up in in the Midwest area, mm-hmm. and I'll, I knew several people from North Dakota, Fargo, and Bismarck, <laughs> who really don't like this movie because, as they say. You know, we don't all sound like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Seems like you do. Uh, they definitely do. I, I lived and worked in North Dakota for about a year uh, around the Williston area. I traveled through Bismarck and Fargo and Dickinson and all those towns. Brainerd? Uh, no, I never got to Brainerd. Never got to Brainerd? Although, no. oh, still, you've yes. been to Brainerd. Yes. Well, I was, yes, I was going to go see ba- the... Um, Paul Bay Bunyan statue with yeah, um, but it's not real. It's oh, not. No, what? I don't know. Oh, well, that I, I think explains they, they made why it for the movie. <laughs> that is so lame. <laughs> but you you've been to Brainerd. Is it? Does it look like this? Well, actually, I I never actually went to Brainerd. I was in Minnesota, and we were talking about going back that way, but oh, we never did. Um, okay, because Bummer. you found out it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is a fictional town right doesn't exist i think brainerd's real oh. but i don't think the paul bunyan statue's real okay. Oh, okay yeah they named it fargo because in an interview they gave they said the other title was brainerd and <laughs> that, that one wouldn't fly uh <laughs> yeah they literally said they called it fargo because fargo sounded cooler it does it, it, it sounds, it sounds really cool. it does sound way yeah. better than brainerd <laughs> we would not be talking about a movie called brainerd, <laughs> brainerd. 
Um, no, but my nostalgia was I, I saw it at first. I didn't like it very much. My mother also very much hated this movie. And I kind of watched it out of like an act of rebellion. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going I'm to watch that movie, mom. And I watched it. and It's like, wow, mom is right. It's not very good. <laughs> and a couple years later, I did revisit. And I, I was just shocked that I was I was very, very wrong. I was very, very wrong. This is uh, this is about as perfect of a movie as I think can really be made. I, I, I think it's I think it's perfect. Uh, it's so entertaining from beginning to end. It's deeply sad, incredibly funny, mm-hmm. very moving, really violent, but also not like you kind of forget about the violence except for the wood chipper, which mm-hmm. is like at the very, very end. But there's like seven dead people before that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and you mostly remember sort of the character interactions and just the Cohenness of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I really love this movie. And uh, I, I look forward to continuing to live on Earth so mm. I can watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'm at with it. As for showing it to my kids, yes, 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 I think yes. But man, I couldn't tell you when. This might be another instance of, I could I could see sitting down with my child who is like 20 years old. It's like Christmas break from college mm. and being like, dad likes this movie a lot. And we laugh and they're of that right age. But I, I can't really see showing it earlier. What, what do you think, Jesse? I would show high school. Like looking back to myself, like I saw it or glimpsed it too young. I, I didn't watch the whole thing when I first saw it. Uh, so I don't think I would want my kid to see it earlier than than 15. Um, it's a cool, it's a good movie as a vehicle for for showing people that dark people really exist and they look very, very ordinary. It's really, and because like, you know, people talk and sound nice, but they aren't. It's, it's the movie that does that best to be honest. And also exemplifying like real goodness in the world. And because of that, I think it's fine because of the stark contrast between good and evil in this movie to show that to like a teenager, because that's an easily comprehensible thing, except for the violence and the darkness and the, the, the evilness of the characters. That's hard to swallow. Um, I think that's an older kid concept, so it needs to be shown later. But I, I would say late teenager. Yeah. What, what do you think, Mike? Yeah, I feel like there's just going to be a month where we we have like, a all right, kids. It's time to grow up. We're going to watch Coen Brothers movies. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's you know, one be of them a... will be like seven. It'll be before the oldest leaves the home, you know, mm. so like 17, 18. And then like, you know, we'll have like a 10 year old in there probably. <laughs> <laughs> you like, you know what? get drafted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're, you're all adults now. <laughs> Here's Inside Lou and Davis. You're going to meet a lot of guys like this. Yep. <laughs> in college, not especially. as interesting as you think they are. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I definitely I definitely look forward to showing it to them. I don't want to wait until they're like 20 or, or 21 because they'll have seen it by then. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't, I you don't know, think they will. Have. I, I think so. I mean, in, in, in like 15 years, there's gonna be a lot of movies. <laughs> I know that's true. That's true. I mean, I think like so for like you said, for, for all of us, um, I think uh, No Country for Old Men was just a massive movie. And I was 17 when I saw that. And it just it blew my mind. Yeah that people made movies like this, yeah, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so like, then I went kind of down this whole rabbit hole of watching movies that were more like it. Yeah. Which is actually, it, 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 that's not a great rabbit hole because mm-hmm. like no stands at the very top yeah. and has so, <laughs> it's so much complexity and gray area. 
And then other ones like, yeah, so this is one of the guy takes the money. There's a lot of shooting. Yeah. Like, that's kind of what I wanted. Yeah. Where's yeah. the meditation on aging though? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And that that's what I, I kind of wanted to. So I saw Fargo, like everyone's like, oh, you like No Country for Old Men. You must like Fargo too. And I'd be like, I actually haven't seen it. And like, oh, well, you know, that's like their movie. That's that's the movie that made the Coen brothers, the Coen brothers. I was like, I was six when this came out. Yeah. But so like when I saw it the first time, I was judging it by No Country. Yeah. Um, and so it didn't really make that much of an impact. They're radically different. They are, but there's actually a lot of similarities, which it's a, uh, it's, we may or may not. We're going to talk, talk about, about, but like it, it's on, on the face of them, they yeah. are much, much different in terms of story, in terms of character arcs. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, they, they have the Cohen similarity. They have the brutal violence. They have the more the moral relativity. And they have like the questing after making violence make sense in a world. Yeah. And that confusion. But that's also with all the Cohen stuff. That's true. There's there was actually. Yeah, I, I'm not going to disagree with you now. I might disagree with you later a little okay. bit more. But uh, but but yes, there, there's a lot of dissimilarities between these two movies. And one's cold. <laughs> one's cold. <laughs> one's really hot, like big difference. But so it, it didn't make that much of an impact. So I kind of want to make sure my kids see it before they see you know, something like No Country or whatever the big movie is when they get to that that age. I want them to be able to see it and sort of walk down that path um, hmm. in the order that, uh, I don't know, that it occurred in a way. I want to try to do that because it's it's a big movie, man. Yeah. It would have been it, it would have been cool to see it before, you know, some of the other ones, No Country or There Will Be Blood. Like table setting. Yeah, a little bit. Mm. A little, a little teaser. Bit. A little bit. Wet, wet your appetite. Yeah. How are you going to wet your young one's appetite? Though? <laughs> Not with this one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd agree with Vito. Um, you know, like 20, 21 is a, is a good age to come to this movie. And I kind of want them to find it on their own. Hmm. I don't want to have to show it to them, but I want them to see it. And the reason I would wait so late is not necessarily because of the violence or everything awful that's happening, but more because... I think one of the best things about this movie is the way it manages to blend so easily something that's hilarious and deeply disturbing at the same time. Yeah. And I don't think I would have been ready to understand how well that was done at an earlier age than, than 20 mm. um, or to appreciate just to appreciate the impact of that. That's good reasoning. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I obviously agree with that reasoning, but yeah. uh, <laughs> I think, I think it stands on its own as well. Yeah, especially like thinking about that that one scene where we were watching it this morning, mm-hmm. uh, where six fucking thirty. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> where they get they get Jean out of the car mm-hmm. and she's blindfolded. Yeah, it's really funny. Yeah, but the longer it goes, it dips back and forth between being mm-hmm. really funny and then super sad. Yeah, and yeah. like really depressing and gross, mm-hmm. and then kind of back to funny. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then back again, and yeah. the way that they sort of let it happen without moving the camera they don't tell you how to feel about it they Mm -hmm. just show you and then they show the guys who are laughing and then they show you again and they show you the guys and then the scene is just over when she runs around the corner of the house Mm -hmm. like there's there's nothing else there and it's funny because it's funny because it's a ridiculous thing to see Mm -hmm. but the longer that you're in the context of the scene kind of the less funny and then the more funny and then the less funny again it gets it's, yeah. it's bizarre that we're yeah. banding that happens. You start like feeling well, bad that you're laughing, but yes. then you're yeah. just like, whatever, I'm going to laugh. And you're like, yeah. and I'm still laughing. Yeah. I'm <laughs> yeah, laughing for, too long. Yeah. For me, it was like, I, I laugh because the situation is funny. And then you see the bad guys laughing. You're like, oh, oh, that's gross. I'm just like them. 
And then yep. it goes back to her, and then she's still stumbling, and then I laugh again. Then it goes back to them, and they're still laughing. It's like, oh, this is really bad. I can't. Yeah. I don't want to do this. Yeah. It, it's a funny, like, participatory thing that they do just by showing you two images, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one after the other, after a very specific amount of time mm-hmm. to where you sat in it. Uh, yeah. And so to your point, I think that that, I think that I don't, I don't want to nurture gallows humor in my child, mm-hmm. but I want to make sure that when they're of the age, that it's there and they can appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, you it. know, and, and I wouldn't even call it gallows humor because it's not laughing at death. It's laughing at a funny situation that is also very painful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, gallows, gallows humor is like laughing at your own mortality. Sure. Um, but this is, you know, like you said, just a ridiculous situation. Yeah. It's ridiculous and awful, but funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, okay. Well, we're all, as, as we usually do, we're rhyming in some ways and very slightly just doing our own dad thing in other yeah, ways, which yeah. is cool. Do you have anything else to add, Jesse? You look pensive. I don't. Well, I don't about this particular subject. But then I want to go back to something that you had, you had said a little previously about the moral relativity of this. And I had made a statement saying that the, the, the good and evil were pretty clear and pretty separate in this, which makes me think... Maybe we're not seeing quite eye to eye on this movie. <laughs> no, I, I, no, we we do. I was just speaking about sort of in in general some of the ways that the Coens treat some of their characters. They they treat some of them with more weight and more gravity, and others with less weight and less gravity. And the moral morality systems at play with the characters does kind of differ per character sometimes. So yeah. here it's very clear that Marge Gunderson and her husband Norm are the bastion of light, mm-hmm. and it's okay. very very clear that Jerry Lundegaard. And then the two thugs he hired are are depraved and evil. Okay, okay, cool. Well, then maybe I want to shift the topic of the pod to something that I think we can all agree upon: that Marge is a really cool character. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So, so given the fact that this is our first detective series and we're talking about detectives, um, even though Marge is not a detective, she's still one of my favorite detectives. Because she is just so damn good at her job. She, like, I, and maybe this crossover with favorite scenes, which we might talk about later or we might not. I don't know how this pot is going. But one of my favorite <laughs> scenes <laughs> is, is when she goes to investigate the, the murders, the triple homicide. Yeah. And she comes across two people first. And she just immediately calls out everything that happened. Like, oh, yeah, there was a car chase. They probably saw the the state trooper getting shot. And then they were followed and they were executed here. And then she <laughs> and then she hunches over. And ready? ready? Everyone, everyone has one. I'm <laughs> going to barf. <laughs> 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 so good. Uh, it's so great that she she's like this pregnant lady and she can handle like Sherlock Holmes situation and is not an asshole like him. She just says it like it is as soon as she figures it out. It's so refreshing in a lot of ways. Uh, I don't know. What do you guys think about Marge as detective? Marge's detective. Honestly, I hadn't thought about it until right now. Oh wow! Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I just thought of her as an extremely good person. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, I mean, she knows exactly where to look, and she knows exactly how to handle people. You know, when she's talking to the to the two prostitutes, (laughs) (laughs) Uh she Uh she realizes immediately that they're you know. 
they have a single thought between them. <laughs> if Except, that. Well, if that. Well, all they got going is like a subconscious thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's all they got. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think as, as detective, I think it's the way she understands people. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, you know, she just sees straight through everything. She assumes the best in people until they give her a reason not to. And I think, I don't know how much that speaks to her as a detective, um, but I think I think as a detective, you have to understand people's motivations, and I think she does that extremely well. Yeah, she gives the, she gives the benefit of a doubt to you know even Jerry. You know, it's right. a very yeah. quick scene. She comes in. Oh, can I yeah. sit here? Yeah. Hey, are you missing any cars off the lot, Mister Lundegaard? He's like, oh no, 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 no cars missing here. All right, okay, thank you. <laughs> and leaves because it's like yeah. dotting eyes, crossing t's. No reason to not believe Mister Lundegaard. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she's just very, very perceptive, really picks up on things mm-hmm. pretty quickly. And like when she's talking to Shep, mm-hmm. uh, she's very sweet, very nice to him, but she does really lay out yeah. the facts pretty yeah, hard yeah. and pretty straight. She's good cop and bad cop. Yeah. With a smile yeah. on her face. Yeah, absolutely. I love that scene. You know, talking to uh, criminally <laughs> related uh, people on yeah. the phone, uh, Mr. Proudfoot. That would mm-hmm. constitute a violation of your parole. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love just how, how smoothly she puts that in there. And it's like, but yeah. I can help you. Just come on. I also love with Jerry how, like, she comes to Lindegard's office one time. And then, like, a day or two later, she shows up again. Like, she knew. She knew there was something off. And she wanted to put it straight right then and there. And she does the whole thing again, like the same way. Like mm-hmm. she says, oh, I'm going to put myself here if you don't mind. Thank you very much. It's like, yeah. let's try this again. <laughs> she sits yeah. in a different chair, though. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that means anything. Like, are you a detective? <laughs> <laughs> when I think of you Maybe watching movies, I, I just think that you are the meme of DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, <laughs> just pointing at the screen. <laughs> That's really, really true. My wife has just like, turned to me suddenly because I suddenly point at the screen. She's like, why? You're terrifying. It's a bird. <laughs> why is the bird important? Mike? It's the bird. <laughs> so the bird did it. Obviously. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Explain your theory. Uh, no, thank you. I don't need to do that. No, dude, she's, she's a great detective, man. I, yeah, I love that. That first scene um, when she comes in uh, so much, mm-hmm. it's really funny. And she's like, Oh, you know, the little guy, the little guy dragged him over here. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at this footprint. He's a big fella. He's a big fella. <laughs> so there's two of them. Yeah, she just like figures it out. Um, mm. And she goes and she does her detective work. Um, she, uh, you know, and, and it's like, what's cool too is the way it's very much a job that she leaves behind. It seems mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Um, she which never is, talks yes. about it. Yeah. yeah. She doesn't say anything to Norm about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read um, that apparently they had made up this whole like backstory for for her Norm that they met while he was while they were both on the police force mm-hmm. and uh, Norm quit because she was the better cop the better <laughs> detective mm-hmm. yep yeah. she could figure out what was going on better and he was like well I guess I'll be a painter and honestly <laughs> looking looking at Norm that's a good speed for yeah. him yeah. yeah you know he he's he's probably a great painter. Yeah. I don't think that I would be looking to tree set tap. Yeah. I don't think I'd be looking at that guy for uh, surprise insights into the homicide investigation. <laughs> Although honestly, more so than the other guy, he, he might do a better job than as you put yeah. the literal cup holder. <laughs> <laughs> That's all the other cop does. It stands there and is DLR. wrong. DLR. Yeah. It said, uh, he, he only got DLR down, you know? Yeah. So that means, uh, it must start with DLR, put out a APB for it. Yep. You know, I have to disagree with your police work there. 
Yeah, she's love great. that. Yeah, no, yeah. she's. Uh, I think. I think if if I were murdered, I would want Marge Gunderson to come investigate it. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's no one better. Yeah, there's no yeah. one better. Because she gets like she picks up on the things like the 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 clues on the crime scheme, but she also gets people like you guys were saying, mm-hmm. like she's able to understand people's motivations and and stuff. Yeah. Also, she's just so morally upright. Like it seems like at every situation, she makes the right decision that you should make in the situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, which is, I can't see that for a whole lot of movie characters where like, I, I agree exactly with what they do. Uh, even if it's a, a tricky situation to to navigate through, she's always easily picking the right thing. What's really great about her is, is that she's a morally ambiguous character who, or sorry, <laughs> she's not a morally ambiguous character. <laughs> there we go. As morally <laughs> unambiguous as you can be, but she's still, um, she's, she does not have moral blinders on, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of, yeah, a, a lot of morally unambiguous characters in movies are, they're sort of naive as mm-hmm. as to evil and you know in a very real sense she doesn't understand evil which she says mm-hmm. at at, mm-hmm. at the end which is a really key line for her character i think um but she is not blind to you know actually evil people and and the fact that they do evil things um yeah, absolutely. but she manages nevertheless to to maintain her moral unambiguousness yeah, mm-hmm. it's really weird almost to have her in this movie because mm-hmm. everyone else is so all over the place. Yeah, and I, she's just like a steady rock. Yeah, you were talking about a bird earlier. There is a bird in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> there is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's this. It's just this white white landscape. It's at the very beginning. Yeah. And there's just this this one oh, yeah. solitary bird going around this frozen wasteland. Yeah. And she's that bird. I think. You know the yeah. Wow. You guys yeah. made fun of me. No. <laughs> you know, See, in, Phil this, knows. in this desolate <laughs> landscape of depravity, mm-hmm. she is the one fragile yet still living thing um, that gives the landscape meaning. She holds life. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Yeah. That's interesting. And then also I noticed this time that the introduction to her character, the first shot is of like a mallard and a bunch mm-hmm. of birds around. Oh, yeah. yes. And it's yeah. like her, her husband, Norm, is like sitting there trying to capture the beauty of this this free oh, thing. Yeah. That's great. Uh, yeah, you just can't re- call up Phil's point. That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> that was really good. Sorry, Jesse, you, you were, you were wanting to shift. Sh- yeah. Yeah. I was wanting to shift. What is it? Yes. Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah, so to the moral unambiguousness of, of Marge for all of that, she is strikingly unlike some of the people that we talked about on this pod, namely like Jack Sparrow or Cool Hand Luke, who we've talked about as kind of these weird agents of chaos. Like they are people who go around and at best are like morally gray, but they're people who just love to cause chaos to the system. And this time around, I saw Marge actually doing the same thing, even though she works for law enforcement, which you would expect to be the super bureaucratic organization She's never doing paperwork. She does whatever she thinks needs to be done. That is the right thing in any given moment. And the bad guys are the ones with the plans. They're the ones with these grand schemes that are constantly failing because good people, especially like Marge, are constantly throwing monkey wrenches into them. When she interviews Shep, he goes and beats up the 
Steve Buscemi's character, who then because of that shoots the shoots the father with a million dollars, and then he takes that back. And then she's just randomly driving around on the lake, and then she finds the car. Like, everything she does seems so random. Like, she wakes up in the morning, she gets a call. Oh, there's a triple homicide. She better go. And it's like, she takes it in, in stride. Like, she lives her whole life by the seat of her pants. It's it's incredible. I've never seen a maybe a good character portrayed in this, like, chaotic way, where they have no, there's, there's no plan. She doesn't have her day mapped out. She just... She just does it and does it well. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. What do you guys think about that as like Marge as the chaos agent of the movie? I like that idea of her as chaos agent. Like, I, like she's obviously not Jack Sparrow or, or even cool hand Luke. Um, but uh, you know, like they're, they're kind of crazy. Um, and yeah, like she's working within the system rather than outside of it. But it is, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like it's something that the Coen brothers touch on a lot is that it's always, it, it seems like a lot of the times the bad guys are the ones with the plans. It, it, it's, it's kind of this weird sort of standing, standing on its head of a, of a, I don't know, a morality players or something because uh, all of these people are, they're like trying to do all this stuff and get the money and, and all this stuff. And they're doing the worst possible things to, to get it. And they also, um, they, what's funny is they literally never get the money. Yeah, they never get no, the money. Whenever there's a bag of money, no one gets the money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, but I mean, I kind of, I, I don't know. I don't know. What you, what do you think of this? I, I kind of saw her almost as a, as an avatar for fate, which in a way is like, it, it's a little different from, from what you said, at least on the face of it. But I think it's, we're seeing similar things because you know, she's she's the one who prevents them from, you know, all getting getting all their their best laid plans uh, to fruition. Yeah, see, that's interesting. Uh, I like that because it I, I don't think it's just her. There's a lot. There's like the state trooper or even the people that pass by. And they're the people that, as far as you know, are going to do the right things like like the state trooper doesn't take the bribe and then he recognizes something wrong is going in the back of the car and then he gets his head shot in. And then the people that pass by, it looks like they're horrified by what they just saw. So they're probably going to go report it. So anytime there's like a good vehicle of, of faith or sorry, not a fate, a good vehicle of fate that's going to like throw a monkey wrench into their plans and get justice done to the, the people that are doing wrong. It's a, uh, the bad people are doing are doing whatever it takes to make sure that that doesn't happen, that those people are, are gone out of the way that fate doesn't come their way. But like they're doing what they're doing is absolutely logical. It's like, yes, of course. Like they saw me kill someone who I had to kill because of what I'm doing, which I'm doing because it makes sense, I guess. Uh, And so now I have to go kill them. You know, everything there, there's like this logic to it. Um, yeah. very ordered. Whereas like the, the goodness almost occurs in a chaotic way. Fate yeah. occurs in a chaotic way, which is weird. Yeah. Yeah. That, that like rhymes totally, on, totally yeah. by chance. Yeah. I think that rhymes exactly with what I was seeing this time around, which was a cool idea that I, I, I don't think I see a whole lot of in other movies. I don't know. Phil Vito, what do you guys think? I, I agree, and I think it's a it's a hallmark of the Coens that there's almost like always an unseen character called fate 
at work in the movies, there's always like grand coincidences. There's always perfect timed things to make sure that something happens that's crazy or that is punishing to those not morally upright or those who are scheming or conniving. You know, there's there's always the the motion of the plot to to make sure there's never a vacuum where there could be drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just really tight writing. And in that way, the world that they have created is is a very punishing kind of world. You know, you, you can't really exist in it for long and try and do your little schemes because all their movies are about people doing schemes, right, mm-hmm. of one kind or another to get what they want. And there's always some sort of fate or or guiding hand of unseen justice mm-hmm. that smacks people down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually like kind of a bigger theory I have that the Coens don't ever write tragedies. They only write comedies. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times it feels like the story is happening to the characters mm-hmm. and they're like along for the ride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they're, yeah. they're strapped in. They have no choice. They have to go through with this. They have to do what is necessary for them as characters to get their goals done. Mm-hmm. But there's always this unseen hand that is like, like at the end of Burn After Reading, you know, like, yeah. uh, <laughs> what, what, what do we learn from this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't do it again? Thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, or stuff like at the it. end of Inside Lewin Davis, right? What does he learn? Absolutely nothing. He just continues on his, his, his self-destructive path of, of cyclic despair. Mm-hmm. Uh, or a serious man where everything like ends in chaos, but no one's really learned something. Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of their central questions seem to be about the existence of good and evil mm-hmm. and fate and faith in worlds that they've created, you know, to help understand these things. They are all morality plays in a way, mm-hmm. but they're all just exploring it with kind of a nod and a wink. Um, yeah. yeah. Like again, so, like in a serious man where they're talking about like, yeah, what does it mean? I don't know. <laughs> That's always the answer. I yeah, don't know. I don't like know. Mar- Marge Gunderson, well, like Marge at the end. Her, yeah. I, I actually have the speech here. It's, it's, oh, dude, it's yeah. so good. It's my favorite line and my favorite scene. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. yeah. And Phil's too. Yeah. She says, so that was Mrs. Lundergaard on the floor in there. And I guess that was your accomplice in the wood chipper and those three people in Brainerd. And for what? For a little bit of money? There's more to life than a little money, you know. Don't you know that? And here you are. And it's a beautiful day. Well, I just don't understand it. Like, mm-hmm. or like end of No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Here's Tommy Lee Jones just being like, I guess this is no country for old men. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like the central yeah. question that they keep answering with, uh, with a shrug. Yeah. Always a shrug. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's it's kind of what you guys are pointing to. Sorry, yeah. Phil. Oh, I was well. I was just gonna most mostly just agree with you. Got it through to you. Let me see. Uh, you're Vito's favorite kind of guest. <laughs> oh, you're right. <laughs> I only like it when I am. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, Fish I mean, I, yeah. I would say that in this one. The, the thing the thing that she doesn't understand is people not being good because she couldn't see any other way of being that would be fulfilling or interesting or worth it in any way. And so she just sees this fundamental disconnect because, you know, people are supposed to seek the things that are good for them. And that's what she has done. And she doesn't understand people who can't see that. Yeah. For a little bit of money? Yeah. For, like, for a little yeah. bit of money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Vito, I, I wanted to ask. Um, I mean, I, I Jesse, d- sorry, did you have something to, keep going. to say like directly on this topic? Well, because I, right, I, I, I want to give you a space to do that. Okay. Maybe in, in direct response to Vito, I, I'll just say, I, th- I think you're right about 
Coen Brothers' other works, but this one is, it's, I don't think it's so much a, of a shrug because Marge is, is like, she doesn't under, it's like, she doesn't understand why the bad guys do what they do. And, but we, as the viewers kind of understand why they do what they do. We're like, yeah, this, like Mike was saying, this is logical. Like to get this amount of money, even though you never, you never ever find out why, why everybody wants all this money. Um, yeah, why does why what sort of trouble is Jerry in that he needs yeah, hundreds of thousands dollars. of dollars? It's it's I have no idea. He wants so much money, and you never find out why. It's so aggravating in a lot of ways. Uh, but you know, because people have schemes and they have these weird goals, sometimes they do, and then they get themselves into these fixes. And this movie shows that, and I think it shows that very clearly. And Marge doesn't understand is like why you would even get yourself into that. In, the first it, place. in regards oh. to oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Phil. Yeah, um, th- that's exactly what she doesn't understand because she she does understand, you know, why they want money and and why they're doing what they're doing, but it's it's the very beginning framework, the very first step that they took on that path that she doesn't understand. It's the whole direction, you know. She understands every step beyond that, but it's at the very beginning, and that's you know that's what she doesn't understand. Yeah, but I also wanted to say I. It is very clear, obviously, why she understands the bad guys, because yeah. she says so. Yeah. But she she is puzzled, though, by the actions of people who act selfishly mm-hmm. and without clear without a clear reason, like her conversation with, with Mike. Mike yeah. Yeah, yeah, Mike Anikita in, in, the, in the restaurant. That is not yeah. clear. And she's very puzzled by that and remains puzzled by that. She can't figure that one out because the morality of it is very strange. Mm-hmm. You know, she gets this call from an old high school buddy, mm-hmm. says he wants to meet up, sees her on the news. She goes to talk to him. And he tells her this whole sob story about how his wife died of cancer. Mm-hmm. And he's just, he's just so lonely. <laughs> and one of the funniest, like heartbreaking things in here. And she, you know, she, she puts him on, she's on guard the whole time and she leaves. And it's only later when she's discussing it on the phone with a friend of her, she finds out the entire story is fake mm-hmm. and she stops. She stops dead. She has no idea what to do mm-hmm. with this information. Yeah. She just says, that's surprising. That's yeah. surprising. Yeah. And I think that's into that, that's some of that greater question. She's directly, obviously addressing the scheme when she says, I don't understand it, but it's like, and I don't understand it. Like, you know, it just seems so silly. You would do that for this gain. But mm-hmm. even though she is such a great detective, I think there are some inscrutable things uh, about the morality of this world that she has genuine, honest questions about um, that are inscrutable to her. Mm-hmm. Like that scene works really well in the movie because it drives her to re-examine Jerry Lundegaard, right? Mm. And that's why she like goes back because she has this like this hesitation, like, okay, that went this way I didn't expect. Yeah. I'm gonna go back to Jerry now. Like you see that kind of like when she's eating, uh she's always eating. Yeah. <laughs> One of the oh scenes where she's eating. <laughs> Dude, the scene where they go, like she and her husband <laughs> I felt physically ill. Like it's I felt so, gross. so sick. How many types of chicken can you put on your plate? <laughs> oh my gosh. And the bowl of jello. And the bowl of jello. Oh, and then the salad. Slurp that down. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were going fishing. <laughs> After lunch. After, After lunch. lunch. Like, listen to lunch. lunch? <laughs> What's dinner look like? <laughs> Um, but I just wanted to address that as a part of the the point I was making. The yeah. the morality in this, in terms of the 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 moral extremes, is very clear. Mm-hmm. But there is a really big middle ground mm-hmm. um, that there is a lot of questioning about, and there's no answers given. Yeah, and yeah. it's kind of a question like they. I think that the question that they end a lot of their movies with is it's it's a little bigger than like what did we learn, but it's like 
how is the world this way? How mm-hmm. is the world such that there's mm-hmm. like, there's this clearly good path that every, almost everyone who sees this movie is like, yeah, Marge, Marge's life is the one I want. The simple life, the life where we get up in the morning and we like encounter the world. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh, okay. Going to go and check out a, a triple homicide today. But also at the same time, I don't know for myself, I feel like I lay plans and schemes all over the place. Nothing like this. But yeah, no. yeah, <laughs> most of the time. Yeah, no, nothing like this. Uh, to be clear, <laughs> we were very clear. Just to be very clear, <laughs> I have never tried to get my wife kidnapped. Okay, Mike. Okay, that's great. That, thank you. Thank you so, uh, so much for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, do we do we all need to say it? I have never plotted to kidnap my wife for money from my father-in-law. That okay, very specific I, I, set of. Yeah. yeah, I've never had my wife tried to. I, I've never personally done it. Um, oh, okay. That's a really interesting way of saying. I, I've never attempted to make a deal to have my wife kidnapped. He just successfully did. Mother, my, <laughs> I feel my, like that's what marriage my, wait, is. What, what am I saying? I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> all right phil phil hasn't said it uh so we're gonna move on so gonna assume <laughs> phil is gonna do it someday is it, is it marriage just successfully kidnapping your wife oh yeah yeah <laughs> yes mike um continue with your point i'm gonna continue Save with by point. women i don't know i, I think I, I think i'm lost here um, you, you, you were starting went, on one point and you also had another point from earlier you wanted to do oh about the coen brothers it? you had two you wanted to say something about the Coen brothers. Wait, no, but this one this wasn't one. done. This yeah. one wasn't done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shit, where was two. I? I don't even remember. Oh, no. Um, we, uh, like, we we look at Marjorie and we're like, we want this kind of life, this simple life where, where we uh, we're able to react to things in a calm way. And, like, the way that, that we're like, yes, this is clearly good. But at the same time, we're constantly laying these plans. I, I, I know I'm constantly laying plans and, like, oh, I'm going to do this and have... And it's just like life comes in and, and says, no, you're not going to, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Or if it does happen, it's not going to be the way that you want it to. And yeah. it's this constant juxtaposition of life where, where you want calmness, but you also want it to go exactly how you want mm-hmm. it to be. It's a weird sort of uh, example of the chaos and order that, that exists in life, which is really cool that they did it this way and amazing. Yeah. And then maybe to steer that back to, back to Vito's question or saying that they don't have an answer and they shrug and i i think i think in some ways it's true based off what mike's saying in some ways that in some ways they do have an answer the answer is marge you want to be like marge mm-hmm. she's the answer but there is no there is a shrug in terms of like you can't get from the killer to be like marge there's no answer for that yeah. you just are you aren't and it's unclear if you can ever be her yeah so is that is that saying that the question kind of doesn't matter? How did the world end up this way? It doesn't matter. Just be good. Yeah, yeah. It's, it seems like a statement that they have made a couple times. Yeah, yeah. or or sometimes it's not even that far. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, with some with some yeah, of the movies, nice. that's what it's like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I what I like so much about this movie is that it matters. Yeah, mm-hmm. it does matter here. She yeah. wins a moral victory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Vito, I did want to ask you, you said that you think, uh, you think, I, I mean, I, I, I want to ask you like what you think, like all go through all the Coen brothers and explain how they're all comedies. But I'm going to ask you, like someday. you said, yeah, someday. 
Um, you said you think Fargo is a comedy. I want to. I want to learn more about that. Why, why do you think Fargo is a comedy? Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's obviously funny. Like, there's a lot, of, a lot of, of hilarity. A funny to, all comedies have to be funny to be comedies, yeah. but all things that are funny are not comedies, right? right. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. it, I think it is a. I think it's a very black comedy because the the farcical nature of what happens, like the the growing turning of the screw of the chaos, mm-hmm. is not really presented in an intense way because you don't like these people. Mm-hmm. You don't like anything that's happening to them. You actually have a protagonist that you can root for. Yeah. And so, what happens to the bad people as the net closes in? is is not it doesn't feel like a necessary like a triumph it feels like they're digging themselves deeper mm-hmm. with every step they do and that itself is very funny mm-hmm. yeah uh, that's a very comedic thing to happen is that no matter yeah. what you try and do to get out of the hole you keep Can't going deeper away. in the hole yeah yeah it's mm-hmm. like when you say that one thing at a party and you didn't mean it that way but then you keep <laughs> trying to explain it it doesn't work and you keep going and eventually you're like i'm just gonna leave mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> but instead for these people to leave is to die uh, yeah. mm-hmm. and in that way, it's very funny. And Marge sees these things, I think to that point of her not bringing her work home with her, mm-hmm. she does see this very much as a job that she's very good at. And at the end of the day, she's not involved in a, in a melodramatic way in these, she's, there's mm-hmm. not going to be a case that Marge just like really took to heart, yeah. you know, um, she's going to get it done and go home. And so these things yeah. exist so far on the outside of her that it, it must be really kind of funny in a really black way that you would watch this like ongoing spiral downwards as mm-hmm. these people scrabble to get out and the it, toilet of fate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. Oh, that's, that's great. Really I think we should, I think we should trademark that and sell that on t-shirts. <laughs> the toilet, the toilet of, of fate. fate. Thank you, Phil. Uh, awesome. You will get no proceeds. <laughs> <laughs> I will sue your ass off. <laughs> I'll flush you down the toilet of fate. Trademark copyright. This um, sounds like a scheme, guys. I feel like this is a scheme. I don't scheming. know how it's going to work out. We might end up with some wood chippers. It's, it's going to be murder. But in, in that way, and you have uh, just the absurd nature of the crime itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Everything. It's so excessive. It's so yeah. extra. It's so needlessly complicated. Mm-hmm. He had, he had to like get this car and like fudge the VIN number. And then he had to give it to the guy and then like explain his whole plan. Yeah. You're going to get half. I'm going to get half. And there's like the constant backdoor dealing. I don't know. Yeah. Just for I all think, those reasons. I think that part of it is exemplified in the scene where Gene is kidnapped. Yeah. Where Steve Buscemi smashes the window and then the other guy just walks <laughs> the front door. Walks front door. Oh, and also in that scene, you think that she dies. At least I thought that like a few times watching it. I'm like, oh she's yeah. dead after she falls down the stairs. And then she's totally alive. It's like yeah. what I don't know why every time I watch it, I keep thinking that that's where she dies. Yeah, <laughs> or she falls down the stairs and is dead. Yeah. 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 It's, it is crazy that yeah. like she's in the rest of the movie and you don't see her face again at all. Like that at is all. like when you when I think back, like oh that's funny. Like, mm-hmm. like that's the most menacing thing about the movie to me is the fact that like they keep a bag on her head for an hour and a half, about an hour of this hour and a half long movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's harsh. Yeah. yeah. But did did I answer your question? Yeah, you did. I think okay. that was good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. So then, so covering Agents of Chaos, I think, I think to get us into the rest of the movie, do we have a scene that we want to talk about, like a favorite that we haven't mentioned yet? Like I mentioned mine and Phil and I share the, the car ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with- I mentioned mine with the, with Marge investigating the triple homicide 
I guess. Uh, is that your favorite too? No, dude. I think my favorite is, um, well, I have one like funny favorite. Okay. Um, which is the scene with the dude from the bar who, uh, or like the, the bartender who calls the cop to yes. his house. Oh yeah. <laughs> the conversation outside. Like, the There's story. this guy. And, the said, story. <laughs> and, the and they like, they both have like their hoods on and like, they're talking to each other and they turn like, okay, goodbye. And they both turn, look up at the sky in the same exact angle. And they're just like, Ooh, it's a great day today. Yeah. I think it's going to get cold. And it's like, you are bundled up in a full, like it's cold now. How does it get colder than this? Oh man. And I think, I think that conversation is filled with my, my favorite lines because all of their, his, the old man's lines are gold when he's just like, uh, and then, uh, and then he says the last guy that called me a jerk. Only he didn't say jerk. Uh, he's not doing so well, you see. Uh, he's uh, he's dead. Uh, if you know what I mean. Not from old age. Not from old age. You know what I mean. Oh, and then, and then he said, and, and he said he was out out on the lake. You know. Yeah. He said he was out on the lake. He's going crazy said, oh, out there. In the oh, lake. Bear Lake. No, no, no. The other one. Because it seemed a little closer. Oh, I mean, that's... Uh, Moose Lake, because it's, it's kind of closer, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then uh, he asked me where to get some girls, and I said, uh, that's not that kind of place. <laughs> I like the whole thing and also every time because you know what Steve Buscemi is talking about all of the lines sound exactly like I can see him <laughs> yeah. delivering yeah. them yeah you know yeah. like you know he called me a jerk except you didn't say jerk you know the other guy you know called that last guy called me a jerk you know he died and not of old age either you can just see him delivering <laughs> yeah. that you know last yeah. guy that called me that he died not of old age either like like this this like swaggering little guy that's trying to be tough <laughs> I like that, that that came through even in another character paraphrasing his lines <laughs> yeah this is pretty great it's pretty great it's a fantastic scene nice yeah. pick yeah um but i, I think i think uh, i mean dude like they're all so good but um one of my favorite scenes that we didn't talk about was the scene on the rooftop of the parking garage mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where steve buscemi gets shot in the face where the father uh gets killed like that scene is pretty pretty wild and i we haven't talked about the father-in-law, the father of uh, Gene. Gene at all. But I think he's a really interesting character in here mm -hmm. in an interesting juxtaposition and in connection to Steve Buscemi and uh, Gar. Gower? Gower, Gower, whatever his name is. It's Peter Stormare. Yeah, Peter Stormare. Like he and he and his uh, his right-hand man and... and um, Stan, Stan, it's Stan Grossman. Stan Grossman. It's Stan Grossman. Stan Grossman. We got to call right. Stan Grossman. Yeah. Stan, like, it's know. just a, it's an interesting yeah. juxtaposition between the two of them uh, and the encounter that they have on the top of the building where, where they shoot each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just like, also what a, what a fantastic joke that the loudmouth gets shot in the face. Oh, so <laughs> so he can't really yeah. talk. It's, it's so fantastic. Great. It's a really good joke. Yeah. And yeah, also that, that Wade's last words are, Oh geez. I laugh but, really I mean, hard yeah. at him dying almost every time just because yeah. he says oh, that. And that's oh, it. Jeez. Oh, it's kind of, like you're kind of happy. Like it's a bit of a victory. You're like, yes! Yeah. Like he's gone. But he's like, he's the best guy there. He's, yeah. He really wanted to get his daughter back and he hates yeah. his son-in-law who sucks. Like, <laughs> but, like, like, but they said a million. He's like, oh, maybe they'll do 500,000. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think he's a pretty horrible dude. He's, like, yeah. he's, he's much, not a good guy. He's much less uh -huh. worse than Jerry. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Of all the bad guys, he's yes. the least bad. Yes. Yeah. He does. It. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, but I also kind of don't agree with the ranking. I, I don't. I don't think that they're supposed to be ranked. I think you're supposed to see that all of these people are just kind of horrible. Mm-hmm. But I, I ranked him. He's a, he's one of the least bad guys. I guess he oh, kills yeah. the least people. on the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> they're all at least. I think there are four bad guys. Actually, you know what? I'm going to call sidebar. All right. Sidebar. So, so question: Who is the worst? the worst of the bad guys since you don't want to rank them would you tell us the worst one <laughs> the worst of the worst norm no um absolutely not i mean it's it's a toss-up for me between jerry lindergaard and and um the marlboro man no i was gonna say um Bishemi. what is his name What's his Carl name? Carl. 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 I was going to say it's a toss between the two of them. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. Like it's a, I feel like it's a toss up between all of them because they're all different types of evil. And like, uh, uh, Gar. <laughs> I think it's like the sound you make in your throat. <laughs> yeah. The Marvel man, like he's, he maybe, I don't know. Maybe he is the most evil because he's just he's, like he's absolute chaos. He had, He's a, it's he's not an chaos. It's absolute he's logic. An animal. It's absolute logic. Yeah. It's internal not, logic. I don't know. I thought I don't he was think kind it's, of a dick. Yeah, it's not really logic. I think absolutely. Why does he want logical. to eat pancakes? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like, where is Pancake's house? Yeah. And then why, why does he kill Gene? He just says he annoys. She annoyed him. I, I don't think of that as chaos. I guess I don't think of that as chaos. It's just like action action for yeah. very little reason. And that's He's why a, I call him an animal. He's mm-hmm. a dude yeah. with like few rules. He has rules where he's he's on the road, he eats pancakes. She makes noises. She's already he's already told her multiple times to shut up. Um she kept making noises, so uh he killed her. If people are about to mess up their entire plans, like the state trooper, the people that see them, he kills them. Like to me, it all kind of makes sense. And even even at the end when he kills Bishemi, that's because I don't think it's because of the money. I think it's because Bishemi. It's the car. It's because Bishemi said, um, F his boy, um, Shep. Remember? I, I never saw any sort of, they, they're never in a scene together. Uh, no, no, no. So Shep, Shep, Shep and Stormare. I, I only caught it this time around, but yeah. Storm, uh, Stormare is Shep's contact, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And Bishemi gets beat up by yeah. Shep mm-hmm. and he says, you know, like, screw that guy. Yeah, I think it was just a combination of like being with this dude. I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure the reason he gets killed is because he doesn't pay him out for the half of the car that he demanded. I thought that, that was like the direct reason. I think, I think that makes sense. Only like this time around, I guess after he threatens Shep or or cusses him out but, or says, uh, but then, we never see a scene with them. Like we don't really, we know their contacts. We don't even know that they're friends. All, all I know is that he says, and and after buddy Shep, and then Stormhead turns and looks. That's when there's a reaction, and only to that. I thought it's because he left the room. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, that's not how I read it. I, I read it as I mean, the money. The money was like a reason, but you know, I think he. I think he just figured he could get all of the money or something like that. Like I, he does. I don't think he has a real reason for doing a lot of the things. He I does. think he killed him for the same reason he killed uh, uh, Gene. Yeah, I mean, he has been annoying. Oh yeah, him. he's, he's been making oh, yeah, so much noise. Yeah. And the only reason why he hasn't killed him from the moment they met is because 
they were going to make some money together. Mm-hmm. He's driving. I he didn't want to drive. Yeah. yeah, he didn't want to drive. Yeah. And he came out with that act so quick. Yeah. It's and like he was he waiting. He was just waiting for him to come ready. back with the money. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah that's true. That yeah, maybe it was just all planned. I don't know. Yeah. Like, he crossed the line. There was a rule that he broke in in yeah. Stormare's personal life and then mm. killed him for it. I don't know. So I'm saying all of them, I guess. That's a lame answer, but th- there you go. I, I you guys have specific people. I think it's definitely... I, I, Peter Stormare is the most evil, but yes. Jerry is... I really he's hate Jerry. Yeah. Freaking evil, I really man. hate Jerry. Oh, yeah. I hate Jerry because he's a coward. I hate him because he's craven. I hate mm-hmm. him because he's greedy. I hate him because he's ineffective and impotent and incompetent and dumb. Well, you stole all of my adjectives. <laughs> <laughs> he's the most hateable character. At least, yeah. at least with Peter Stormare, I'm like, I recognize this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I agree with you on, on Jerry. Um, and there's, the there's reason- one word I didn't use. What's that? Bitch boy. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> you found two words. <laughs> yeah, but the reason I think he's the worst is because he's the most like a normal person. He's not a criminal, and he's a person that, not that I'm going to hire Steve Buscemi to kidnap my wife, but like he's, <laughs> you know, he's the person. Interesting. That <laughs> now we've all got it out there. Yeah. He's the person that an ordinary person could become. Yeah, he, he breaks bad in the worst way. Yeah. <laughs> so like in a totally way. impotent way. Yeah. <laughs> For no reason. <laughs> yeah. That's a good okay. answer. Yeah. I think that's good. Yeah, I think I, I think I have to agree with Phil here because like Jerry, yeah. Jerry. Exactly. That is who I agree with. All right, cool. So yeah, Stormare, it's it's I don't know. There's like Stormare who's like really bad. And there's Buscemi, who's just like a vile individual. Who's just really yeah, he's just gross. And, he's yeah. pathetic. He's really yeah. just pathetic. But yeah, Jerry <laughs> has the shot of living a normal life. If he just chooses to, and constantly chooses the other path, whereas Buscemi and Stormare clearly don't have a chance. Yeah. Or they're, or they're just not interested. You know? And the way Jerry just doesn't give a shit about his kid is just so despicable, yeah, yeah. especially oh, as a dad. My son. Yeah. Oh, whoops. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a third person in the house. Darn it. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't even really talk to his son except to manipulate him to not tell other people. It's so, so I hate it. Uh, yeah, and, and, he's a, and, and Jesse, he's a, he's a, he's, he's a fucking liar. <laughs> <laughs> Told me to take that true coat off. <laughs> oh man, the true coat. Ugh. The true coat. It's the worst. All right. Um, so I, I think by I do I do want to kind of like throw out like or, some of my. No, he's oh. got to end a sidebar for the sidebar. Oh. Jer- Jerry's yeah. the worst, the best of the worst. I guess. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not, yeah. By popular demand, Jerry's the worst. All right. End sidebar. The worst. I, I do want to throw out just like I think that uh, that 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 Wade is pretty awful. Like he's an awful dude, sure. And and I think that I mean, I think some of what Jerry like some of his uh, sort of uh, impotency comes from his relationship to his father in law. Oh, and I mean, like sure. oh, yeah. he probably you know married Gene because he was like, oh, this is a great way into money. Yeah. But mm-hmm. and like his his father in law saw that, but just the saw fact, that immediately. Yeah, saw it immediately. <laughs> but the fact that he raised a daughter who who would marry a guy like that. Like, like clearly he didn't do a good job. And he also showed how much he valued her constantly by being like, I think we can get him down. 
like no this is a human life like this your is daughter's, your daughter's, your daughter's life. life like don't don't think about it that way just constantly stepping stepping on jerry and yeah i think uh he's it, not yeah he's not evil in the same way as as any of the other people are but i again i don't think they're any of them are in the e- evil in the same way they're all evil in different ways he's just like he's so proud he will not let let jerry go and do this deal when this is my uh, deal wait this is this is my deal here. he's like no you, got, you gotta listen deal. to me here <laughs> it's my deal yeah. Every deal is his deal. I think what we can say is that if a character is named Jerry and it's not played by Tom Cruise and it's, it's a really poor sad sack. Yeah. 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 It's at least two of them. Yeah. Rick and Morty. Yes. Yeah. That Jerry. That Jerry. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you knew that one. Too. Of course. All right. So where do we want to go from here? We've talked about some general themes. We've talked about kind of the people in it. We've talked about some of our favorite characters and the worst. Who's the worst of the worst? What's next? Well, Vito, I know you're chomping at the bit to talk about your favorite Cohen brothers. I, I, I am. I am. I do want to talk about the Coens. <laughs> I do want to talk about them a little bit. I feel like we've been talking about them a bit. Let's we talk have. about them some more. We have, because <laughs> like in all of our series so far, we've really managed to dip into one big name and then we're out, right? We do one yeah. and then we move on to another one. So we've got, at this point, we've done like Edgar Wright. Um, Upcoming, we've got some Fincher, but we've already done some Nolan. We've done some Wes Anderson. Like we're touching on these big names that are very idiosyncratic and have their own hallmarks and touches. And we've talked about sort of the Cohen's uh, preoccupation with morality, our, our us living in a sort of a, a, a ill-fated world mm-hmm. um, where there's not a lot of light, not a lot of joy. But there's some to be found if you look for it sometimes. And sometimes that's a joy is a lie. But <laughs> kind of, we can laugh. We can laugh. We, 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 we laugh to the grave. I yeah. Guess. And sometimes we die laughing as, yeah. as, uh, as Bernard does in Bernard for Awesome. Spoilers for another movie, dude. Come on. Um, I love that scene. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. But something else that they're known for, though, is their very distinct characterizations, right? Mm-hmm. They have very weird characters. Also like Wes Anderson. Yeah. And, but they come from a lot further back than him. They kind of come up in the nineties, like this one and Pulp Fiction are like the big nineties movies that sort of break open independent cinema into being the mainstream. And that's how we get Tarantino. That's how we get these guys. And they're both operating in a really interesting way. Like Tarantino is like, how can I make movies that just reference all the movies that I love? And then the Coen brothers are like, Hey, how about we have referenceless work? Like most of our movies don't really reference anything. It just are what they are. I'm not going to line up this shot so it's an homage to a Hong Kong movie from 1971. <laughs> like Fargo has almost no visual allusions to any other work. It's very original. It stands all alone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Even to the point of them doing the the part at the beginning where they're like this is a true story, names have been changed and they did it so that way they could break any ties to the t- detective genre as they know it so that way they could tell whatever they wanted and people would buy it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Adam Naiman made a really funny point. He's like, it's actually a really masterstroke that the Coens invalidated almost every review written about this because it's factually inaccurate because <laughs> they're all talking about it being a true story <laughs> where they even awesome. swear in interviews that it's a true story. And the guy like there's an interview, I, I forget who it was with, but he asked them and he says, so this isn't a true story. And Joel Cohen says, isn't it? <laughs> and Ethan Cohen goes, I'm sure it is. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. The interviewer's like, is so, he's like, uh, 
oh, it just seems so wild. They're like, yeah. And they both just kind of nod and stare at him in unison, like like weird Siamese twins. <laughs> or like the hookers in the bar. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but of course, it's all a joke. You know, there is no true story. Yeah. It, even in watching the movie, it makes mm-hmm. no sense that it would be a true story. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. But something that they are concerned with that, for instance, Tarantino is not concerned with is the depiction of masculinity. They are They are very focused on this. It's in most of their work is what defines a man, what makes a man a man. And they show pretty much every kind of variety at this point. We have our our conniving little freak, like Steve Buscemi. Mm-hmm. Um, we have our, our gang of robbers, like in The Lady Killers. We have those who are out only for their own interest, but we like them for it, like an intolerable cruelty. Uh, we have things like, uh, like Hail Caesar, where I don't know what the hell is happening in that, but it's about communists. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've got like this strong religious businessmen Mm -hmm. and yeah yeah but in all of them there is this question i mean they even have a movie called a serious man (laughs) which is about examining what middle-aged life and fatherhood is like uh from their their jewish experience or we're talking about this for old men yeah yeah Yeah. and you know it's in the title there it is yeah it's the movie (laughs) (laughs) spoilers for no country for old men it's about that uh (laughs) it's not about women it's, it's really not, even though they factor in very, very heavily, um, as they do in all of the Cohen's work. It, it, it's, it's also a quote from a poem. I don't yeah. know if you knew that. Yeah. I, I did, it but is. I didn't okay, know it is. poet. <laughs> Yates, man. It's Yates. I don't read Yates. Ceiling to... So while, while Mike while Mike composes "Ode to a Grecian Urn 2. Uh... <laughs> Go earn yourself. <laughs> I did want to talk about it here because we get we get the Craven. Um, as Adam Naiman put it, the venal here with our with our supporting cast of evil people who are motivated primarily by money, which is uh, Jerry, Wade, Stan Grossman, uh, Peter Stormare, and Carl, right? They're all motivated by this money. And then we have a few other supporting guys. They seem kind of dumb. Like the state trooper looks like he's doing his job. He doesn't seem particularly bright because he doesn't think that this information matters at all. Yeah. Even though it like cracks the case wide open. And then we have the literal cup holder who is bad at everything, doesn't even understand that a dealer plate says DLR, which anyone who had ever been to a a car lot would know. But we do have Norm. Norm's here. Mm -hmm. He's literally the normal one. Yeah, (laughs) It's his name. (laughs) He's very straight. He takes care of Marge. He likes painting his ducks and he likes ice fishing. You know, Mm -hmm. and the the relationship they have is really, really beautiful. And it's not something that the Coens really return to. Mm -hmm. Um, They they don't usually have female protagonists. Mm-hmm. The women are usually like an obstacle. I, I think I'll also add that the more times I've seen this movie, the more time, like the more I've appreciated their relationship. Like when I first saw it, I thought that they, that Marge and Norm had a very unloving relationship and I couldn't figure it out. But now being a married guy, I'm like, yeah, dude, they really love each other. He just got up and made her eggs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a huge deal. Because it's it, like you gotta eat in the breakfast. morning. Yeah. It's you gotta so, eat breakfast. I'll make you eggs. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, no, 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 you don't have to. He's like, I'm making you need to eat you the food. Eat breakfast. See, I'm making you eggs. I would have stopped at you don't need to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. okay. That's good. Oh, you're good? Okay. I'm back to sleep. Yes, because that's all he wants to do. I love that moment where 
She's facing the camera. He's facing away behind her, and he hawks this enormous loogie, <laughs> and then she just sort of smiles a little bit. It's, yeah. it's so sweet. I, I like. I like that they go to sleep watching TV. Yeah, and his hands in the his potato head. chip. <laughs> and they're they're like wearing sweaters in the back. Yeah. <laughs> People who are firmly oh, comfortable man. with one another. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah it's, it's clearly so been together for like years, and also they still have like almost every meal together like yes. yeah. they go out of their way to make sure that happens yeah that again that's another huge sign that you really love each other i like i don't i don't do that with my wife and we do have a good relationship but it's like you know that's really going out of your way yeah and it's it's funny contrasted with the the writer adam Naiman, who i like a lot who literally wrote the book on the coen brothers it's entitled the coen brothers this book really ties the films together hold, hold, on, hold um, on just so just so our audience knows Vito just reached across his table and propped this book up just so i can see it he's doing it now he's doing it now <laughs> he's not just referencing this book in his mind he has to get the physical copy i, I have it i have it in my hands i have it in my hands because i, I really respect adam Naiman. but he says something in here that i really disagree with and he said it in a couple different podcasts talking about fargo so he says the ending of the movie is on its surface a very comfortable sweet happy ending mm-hmm. where they look at each other Norm says two more months. She says two more months, referring to the oncoming birth of their child. And we fade out with them l- watching TV, wrapped in each other's loving embrace, saying, I love you. Mm-hmm. And his reading is that that's a terrifying ending. And it's a very negative one, a very sad one, because what could happen in those two months in a world where evil like this is so banal and they encounter it on a day-to-day basis? And huh. I, I just want to put forward... in. For a writer I respect and love very much who wrote a work that I think really is the Bible on the Coens, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. I think that's a wrong reading of this ending. This oh, is absolutely. this is a comfortable, beautiful, domestic relationship built on love and trust. Mm-hmm. That 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 is a that's an interpretation that likes to shove out everything that we've seen in this movie, period. It's not like Marge and Norm are getting up every morning and being like, What's gonna happen today? Like mm-hmm. there's they, no do embrace it. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes, they embrace it yes. every single day. That's part of what makes them good. She, she's, she's, she's bringing the guy that she just saw pushing someone into a woodcutter. Mm-hmm. And the thing she mentions that's really sad about this is that it's a beautiful day. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like it sucks you did this on such a nice day. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the the what he bases it on is that there's no there's not a scene where Marge tells Norm about her meeting with Mike. That. It's predicated upon what he thinks is is a very interesting pun that she's getting away from the norm by going to the big city to do this thing with Mike. It's a very wild reading that I think really does discredit to the relationship that I think the Coens are are, Mm -hmm. are meaning to portray with absolute sincerity. And just to clarify, like that Marge is like on the well, not on the cusp, but she's sort of flirting with the idea of starting something romantic with Mike. Yes, you know, that's you know the, I read that it mentions yeah. that like it's the what? the only time where she's wearing lipstick or wearing you know feminine clothing. Yes, um, and I did notice that, and I didn't know how to how to understand it, but I don't think it's that. I don't think it. No, I, I think, think she's just that, being nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's this guy she, that she hasn't seen since mm-hmm. they were teenagers in, in, in high school. I think in high school, like yeah. it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not clear how long it's been, but like she wants to present herself in her time. best light. It, it's it's yeah. not it's someone she's comfortable time. with. Yeah. You know? she, she makes it very abundantly clear she wants nothing romantic mm-hmm. whatsoever with Mike from the get go. 
Like, yeah, yeah. You that's know, just, yeah. Th- yeah, you, she's overly polite. That's the whole shtick of, of this area, right? You're overly polite yeah. all the time. If you haven't seen somebody in a long time, you put your best foot forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 called manners. Yes, <laughs> and it's just like this they thing had that, that we're in abundance with, with Norm too. Like this thing that we're seeing with with her with her Norm is that she is comfortable, absolutely comfortable mm-hmm. with who she is and who he is, and mm-hmm. that's that's where we mm-hmm. see beauty in their relationship. Mm-hmm. She looks the most uncomfortable in that scene with mm-hmm. Mike. Yeah, she, looks she never looks uncomfortable, there. but there, yeah, yeah, she she. She's sitting, yeah. she's sitting with a literal axe murderer in the car and she's yeah. talking to him like in a very gentle chiding tone. Yeah. But when Mike switches sides in the booth, like yeah. that's not okay. Yeah. yeah. She literally says she's uncomfortable. Yes. Which yeah. is, yes. Yeah. I don't, well, I don't she walks into the room head. and she doesn't <laughs> look comfortable. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Good for uh, Marge. Way to go. Marge. Yeah. Good for Marge go and good for Norm too, for having no inkling that he's cowed by her being the breadwinner. Mm-hmm. No inkling that he's intimidated by her job. None of no. none of her her workmates look down on him either. They just come in. They ask him genuinely, "How is your painting going?" Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. like I, I those really are, like this portrayal. Those are her old. Oh, sorry, those are his old coworkers. Yeah, because he used yeah. to work there. Apparently, yeah, according, according to the, the backstory story. they they made up. But also, also, it kind of struck me that when the baby's born, Norm is also the kind of guy that would be like, "Do you want me to go back to work right now? All right, I'll go back to work." And you'll stay with the baby. Like it can go either way and it doesn't matter. And he's, he's man enough to do whatever needs to be done in the situation. In this case, she's better cop. So she's there. It just, it just makes sense. Like everything in the, in their relationship and everything about him makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. What do you guys think about? So when she comes back, like at the beginning of that last scene, um, she gets into bed with him. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, he tells her about like, oh, I got the three cent stamp. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't get the twenty nine cent, but mm-hmm. I got the three cent. We don't. She doesn't talk about her day at all. Nope, mm-hmm. at all. But he tells her about her his day. Mm-hmm. It's like um, the expectation is that he shouldn't ask. Almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, I think it's it's he's he's not a selfish guy. We know that. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he's not asking seems very intentional. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. and the you know the way I read it a few times I watched it is that is that he was sort of not fragile, but he, you know, he was insulated from the, um, from the realities of her job. But of course, you know, given the backstory, he's actually not insulated. And I think, I think watching it this time and given what you guys are saying, I see it now more as like, that's an arrangement they have to insulate their nest from the outside world. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't bring any of that in and that's good for both of them. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I feel like there's a couple of readings you could take from it. And one of them, I, I, I don't think that it's it's this, but I do want to give voice to it, is that like she's taking care of him. He's like mm-hmm. kind of a man baby yes. or something, and she's just taking care yeah, of him. And I don't agree with that. But. Yeah. It, <laughs> I think I'm more compelled with the idea, with that idea that they're protecting that nest. And, and something that I noticed this time around is that there's so many references to the fact that she's on TV, which we never see. Mm. We never see her on TV, but she is. And a lot of people are seeing it. That's how Mike... Sees her and calls her oh, at like yeah. one o'clock in the morning or whatever it is when it's, they're it's, asleep. It's, it's, it's really 15. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, he hopes it's not too late. Yeah. <laughs> like, dude, no, you don't call people. It's way, it's way the only late. person that you will ever be receiving a call from 11 15 is this guy right here. <laughs> but yeah, like, like, so he knows what's going on. Yeah. He's been watching those things. I'm sure, like, within sort of the, the context of their relationship, like, he is religiously watching 
her mm. interviews mm-hmm. on I'm TV. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so he doesn't need to ask her. Mm. He'll be there if she wants to reveal it, but I don't know. That's the reading I'm taking from it. Yeah, I think it's a good reading. And and yeah. it also like they tell each other what's good, mm-hmm. not what's bad. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. Um what's good is that he won the three cent stamp. She's That's so the good of thing of the day. You need it you need it when they raise the price of postage. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Um, they're good people, so they focus on the good things, not the bad things. Because if you focus on the bad things, you end up like Jerry or like Steve Buscemi or like any of those other guys who do focus on the bad things all the time, which is why they end up making those terrible decisions. These people are fundamentally like different from all the bad people because they focus on what's good, even if just like Norm, you don't really think that being on the three stand is that big of a deal. And he doesn't, he tells it anyway, because it's just the best thing he has to offer. And also he probably knows that she has been on the road. Like she's been gone for a whole night, like on a case. He knows not to ask about it. He knows this is not, he knows this is a big deal. And he's probably seeing the TV, like you were saying. So like, uh, why bring that into this house right now? Just yeah, I like mm-hmm. I like what you said about the nest. This ties in really well because, mm-hmm. like, when you see them in the house, you see them mostly in the yeah. bedroom. Yeah, and they're just in bed mm-hmm. in the comfiest, warmest things they can have. Yeah, like true nesting has happened. Here. Yeah. yeah, they have literally like they've they've flown out into yeah. the Fargo wilderness. They have brought back the the wheat, the grasses. <laughs> they have circled up. <laughs> they're getting ready for a long winter. You know. Yeah. Is there a couple of mallards here? Yeah, yeah. they got some mallards. Yeah, they're ready. <laughs> they they're are ready mallards. for this. Yeah, one of them's a mallard. The other one's a duck. Um, yes. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure we had the norm and the masculine conversation because I think mm-hmm. when we cover other Coens, that question of masculinity in a bunch of different movies is looks a lot different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they say a lot of different things about it that are not, almost none of them are this wholehearted and sweet Mm -hmm. i have a question that i think ties to this okay um yeah i'm gonna ask it is it all about the money i mean i thought it was all about the benjamins (laughs) you thought it was all about the bennies all about those bennies do do you think it's all about the money phil i don't know what that means (laughs) she said she she asked she asked um oh oh at at the end like for a little bit of money did, did all this for just a little bit of money. So oh, so yeah. she is in that scene asking him very specifically. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think we should frame it in that way. Sure. Yeah. Did did he do it all for the money? I want to ask mm-hmm. if any of them did it. I know, all for I know. Money. But but in that scene, she's specifically asking him. Sure. Okay. Can we start can we start with him mm-hmm. and radiate outwards? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's hard to say what his motivations are because he is a total animal. Yeah. Um very tacit I, yeah i think i think only insofar as money allows him to um to get pancakes and get laid those he's are, not even interested in getting laid the only thing that true. he expresses any desire for is pancakes and then like he seems to be enjoying watching is that like days of our lives or something yeah <laughs> i love when they reveal that the person's pregnant and his mouth <laughs> yeah. just like falls open <laughs> it's so funny <laughs> he's just like Oh, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, he's not, he's not interested in the prospect of getting laid, but he's interested in getting laid. Yeah. As we like, see. he's okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Money, I mean, 
money for him probably an instrument to to get the things that he wants um but you know i don't see him buying himself a, a gold chain and a and a you know a grill for his pit bull or something like that yeah well he yeah. would have yeah. yeah he wanted the car Yes, that's but that true. car is not like a super a, snazzy car. Oh, oh I do, I do have a note about the car. That's yeah, the, that's the first car I ever bought. Really, a a burnt umber Cutlass Sierra. That is awesome. Is the first car I ever bought. Yeah, was it on purpose or? No, I hadn't seen the movie at the time. Oh I was gosh. I was seventeen years old, and I bought it for two large pizzas and a, a two liter of root beer. Wow, was what? This, yeah. Wyoming. Wyoming is a strange place. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know that that was legal tender. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> they don't have actual cash in Wyoming. No, it's, it's, it's just a pizza. pizza. <laughs> it's, it's, it's more of a it's more of a barter system. Uh, I bartered sense. for it. It was from it was from my very first boss at my very first job, and I needed a car, and I anticipated having this one to make a road trip out to California, where I eventually ended up. Yeah, and so I bought this car from him for that amount of currency. That's amazing. Um, two pizzas and a two liter of root beer. And uh, I never actually drove it anywhere except back to my house where I parked it. And it stayed there for seven years because it had over 200,000 miles and it would not have made it to California. And my father eventually junked it and then <laughs> used the money to fund a trip to come out to see me. <laughs> so when I see that tan Cutlass Sierra, I just think about the first car I ever bought and only drove from my work to my house one time. That's amazing. How many miles was it? Like 10? Yeah. That's awesome. That's so great. That's the exact same thing that happened to my first car. Oh, nice. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I was working. I was doing some yard work for this guy. And he had just gotten a new car. And he's like, oh, you know, this is a piece of junk. But do you want it? And I, I drove it from like two miles from his house to my house. And the head gasket exploded. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Was it also a burnt umber Cutlass Sierra? <laughs> Silver 2002 Hyundai Sonata. I think. Wow. Yeah. Isn't learning from experience fun, guys? Yeah, Isn't it like the so best yeah. thing? That's a good time. I'm sorry. I just I, I just realized that I, I, I never had an opportunity to tell anyone that. That's amazing. So, <laughs> it's incredible. Um, but we, I was distracted from the main point. I'm sorry. What was the... All right. You're going to have to remind me. I can't remember. Yeah. What, what was the, Was it all just for the money? For the money. Was yeah. it that all why, just for the well, money? Every single one of them talks about it as if they're doing it for the money. You're right. So Jerry Jerry like definitely wants masculinity and he wants his penis back from his, <laughs> from his father-in-law who has yeah. taken it and is holding it under lock and key. But he really wants money right now because I guess there's a pressing debt. Right. But yeah. the debt occurred because of like wanting to not be impotent like it's, yeah you, you, you right? think like or maybe maybe he just wants to be rich i i don't know i mean he's um, a used car salesman I, we can't trust anything he says <laughs> yeah. i did see an interesting quote from the cohen brothers both saying that all of the characters are exceptionally greedy and just want money um mm. but oh, really i mean but i don't see huh. that carried out in the movie because I see them wanting money. True Cohen fashion. I know. Like they, I don't trust anything they say. Man. Yeah, I don't. I don't trust like, anything. This they is say. a true story. I. <laughs> this, is, this is true greed, isn't it? But <laughs> I love that. But then so again, sure like true greed is to be miserly, right? Is to be like Ebenezer Scrooge, just counting your cash. And nobody's like that. The closest person like that is Wade, but even he seems to want money just for the futures of his um, like grandson and daughter. But um, but even that, like I, I think that ties back. I I think your main point is that none of them are doing it for the money. Is that what you're driving? I think towards? they're seeing money as a method for mm -hmm. their pride. I guess maybe mm -hmm. that's 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 what I yes. think. 
I I'll, think I'll put forward what I think. Yeah. Well, like since... because because even that, like with um with wanting to take care of their future, isn't it more so that he could have done it? Mm-hmm. Like he takes a deal because it's yeah. his deal. Like mm-hmm. this is my, like it's all about him expressing yeah. his himself on the world, and like yeah. and, and and yeah yeah. So so are you kind of saying that money is a measure of worth and everything that they do in relation to the money ties into that because you know Jerry wants it like Vito said so he can get his penis back. Wade uses money to aggrandize himself and abase others. Yeah. You know, it, yeah, it yeah. is it is a, a proxy for masculine worth. Right. Yeah. Again, the thing that Cohen's are like obsessed with. What, yeah. what do you think, Jesse? You've you've tried to break in a couple times. I'm sorry. Uh, well it I don't know. It seems like now we're going back to a greed or money being a direct value of, of your life. So yes, they are just very greedy. But I think uh, you, you're thinking of it more as a means. To yeah. Something it, else. It, it, it's not like it, they're, they're and, seeking yeah. the money to have the money. Well, Jesse's saying yeah. this. He's also, you guys are, we're actually agreeing. Yeah. Yes, there's just a, a, a priori of importance that is not being paid. Fair. Like, okay. yeah, the money is for something else, but it seems like at the end of the day, it's, they're always going to want more. It's always about the greed. It's always about wanting the more because will Bishemi ever stop? Will Wade ever stop? Never. Well, Jerry, Jerry won't stop. None of these characters will ever, ever stop. That's a two bit hood in the making. It's fantastic. He's a used car salesman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I mean, I do think that the most interesting and difficult to understand one is, um, is Gar. Uh, I, I think Steve Buscemi, like, like kind of understanding that, like how, how is he driven? I, I don't know. Like, I, I'm, I'm not totally clear on that. Like why is he doing this for the money? Well, he, I don't know. He has little man syndrome, you uh-huh. know, and, yeah. and, and he wants, he wants money so that he can pay women to have sex with him yep. yeah. and to buy feminine coats yep. and, <laughs> he, he, you yeah. know, just be a, you know, just be a big man. The too. reason that Phil is saying that is because my mother owned the exact coat <laughs> that he wears. That's amazing. The exact coat. It, 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 it was startling seeing it because I, I've recognized it every time I watched it, but this time I'm watching it with Phil and I was like, that's my mom's coat. <laughs> Why is he wearing that? But then he's like taking, it he's taking really like, funny. like escorts to Jose Feliciano yeah. concerts. Like, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I bet, I bet when you go with clients, you're getting sit in the VIP yeah. section, yeah. watch Jose Feliciano. Yeah. Hey, I want more champagne. Oh, she didn't see me. Okay. <laughs> like they don't yeah. see him even when she, even when he pays them, she's so bored. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Find that work interesting. Do you? <laughs> oh my God. That was what are you talking what are you about? Talking about? <laughs> you guys did it at the same time. It was great. <laughs> Which um, I, I think, I guess the reason why I wanted to ask that there is because I think it sets up that contrast again with, uh, with Norm, who mm-hmm. I think you would say is, is almost unnaturally humble. Not in like the like he's humiliated. It's that he doesn't aggrandize himself. Mm-hmm. He doesn't see the the trappings of the world. He doesn't serve mammon. You know. Oh, and um, also, which and is, also incredibly seen. Um, yeah, like, like all the coworkers come up and they talk to Marge and say hi to Norm first. <laughs> like, yeah. like it's funny. Like this most humble guy who doesn't even look at them. When he's talking, no, he's sitting with his back to yeah. them and just like yeah. over his shoulder. Oh, hey, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, oh, yeah, I'm going ice fishing. Um, yeah, yeah, he lives a life almost of, of service or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. As opposed to one of like expressing himself on the universe. Mm -hmm. Like a big man. Yeah. He's a guy who, who just has no pride. He's just utterly humble. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I, I, I'd never seen Norm as, um, as the antithesis to literally every other man here. He's not there to make his imprint on the world, even though I think just by having a kid, he probably will. Well, everybody else won't. Um, yeah. Uh, he, yeah. Oh, all dead. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> yep. And yeah. Peter Stormare is in lockup, probably going to get a life sentence or a death sentence. Mm-hmm. I mean, you put in someone in a wood chipper and you yeah. killed a hooded woman inside. You tried to extort for ransom. And then there's Jerry's kid and that kid is going to grow up and he's going to be so messed up. That poor, that poor kid. Yeah. yeah. We never and see what happens. Good. Yeah. Yeah. He wants to be a yeah. good kid. Yeah. He's so he sees his dad true. as yeah. the accordion king. Yeah. And just like the accordion king, his father's just full of hot air. <laughs> the accordion king. Oh my, I, I, I had never, <laughs> I had never noticed that poster until this time around. <laughs> and the, the accordion king is such this, this huge poster of this, Oh, well, he, he's taking accordion lessons. He's got he's got the stand mm-hmm. right there with the music, and he's got the accordion next to him on the bed. You know, but, it's clear. Yeah. He's, but juxtaposed to the accordion king is a white snake poster. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this kid is already super confused. Things are not going to get better for not him. This poor kid. So before we kind of wrap up, yeah. then um, I did want to share a little story from a 2003 short documentary that you can find on YouTube. It's about 25 minutes long. Okay. And it details an urban legend that grew up around this movie that actually later inspired. So the, the documentary is called This is a True Story. And it inspired a 2014 film called Kumiko, the Treasure Hunter. It's a bizarre urban myth that arose around Fargo, specifically the hiding and burying of Steve Buscemi's money. So in November of 2001, a Japanese woman from Tokyo showed up, I think in Bismarck, North Dakota at a police station. She could not speak English. She did not know. She had a hand-drawn map, which was two lines with a tree on it. And through talking with the policemen at this station, they deduced that she was looking for the place where Steve Buscemi's character put his money in the movie Fargo. They don't know how to help her. They try to explain it's a movie. This again, this is, she cannot speak English. And she's fully convinced that it's real. No, they think so. Okay. They think that, but they can't talk to her because oh, she doesn't okay. speak the same language. She just has this map yeah. with two lines that look like roads and a tree with a little marking next to the tree. Okay. Now they take her in this, it, this is all in the documentary. They take her to the bus station saying, you, you know, you can leave or you can go to Fargo. It's a few hours away. And on the way, she says something to one detective that, sorry, one police officer that implies that maybe she has some kind of cancer that she may be dying from. Um, So she shows up in a couple different places around North Dakota, um, Michigan, Minnesota area. Um, She was found on November 15th outside the Detroit Lakes in Minnesota. She had frozen to death outside. And this was always the theory is that she had watched Fargo and thought it was real based on the this is the true story. This is a really bizarre story. And it like made headlines at the time. And I remember it because it brought Fargo back into the public consciousness. Hmm. Um, 
But this documentary, which goes really deep into, like the guy goes all the way back to Tokyo, interviews her landlady, um, interviews the people that were, that were close to her in her life. And it turns out that she actually had fallen in love with an American man at a certain point and had spent some of the best times in her life around this area. She had later fallen after she had kind of broken up with him. She had some sort of undiagnosed mental disorder. She'd fallen into drug abuse and alcohol abuse and eventually came out here as like a final goodbye before she drank two bottles of champagne and froze to death on the shores of this lake in November. Oh my gosh. And it's a wild story because everyone thought it was real for a really long time. Even when this documentary came out, Mm -hmm. it's not well known. It's poorly made, very amateur. Um, kind of hard to watch because it's so poorly made, but it has actual interviews with these people. Um, it has text of those interviews. And later on in 2014, it kind of came back when this movie, Kamiko the Treasure Hunter, came out. This woman's name was Takako Konishi, um, and her death has been ruled a suicide at this point. Huh. Um, no evidence of foul play whatsoever. Whoa. It's a very, very sad woman who yeah. came to the American Midwest um, to end it. And yeah. her story got wrapped up in the Fargo story in a really bizarre way that is completely unsubstantiated. And I don't know if anyone's heard that theory or if you're like going to throw it out as like a fun story, a fun fact, you know, about Fargo. Hey, do you know, there was this, this dumb person that mistook this for real. And she was not a dumb person. She was, uh, she was horrifically depressed and very troubled. Yeah. Um, And it has no connection with the Fargo movie at all. The policeman. That sounds like a Coen brothers movie. Yeah, (laughs) it does. It does. It's just not funny. Yeah. No, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just it, it's just a wild story. And uh, if you want to watch the documentary, it's it's a fun sit. Not yeah. well made, but the story is really good. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to clear that up just in case, just in case, you know, leave, leave Takako Konishi alone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she does. You don't need to share this story as like a fun tidbit about the one thing you know about Fargo at a party. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, you know, if she had stayed around for the TV show, she might've found out that the money's all taken by some guy who later goes on to own a bunch of stores. That's right. Is that what happens? Well, it's, it's heavily implied. Spoilers, by the way. Heavily. It's, there's an implication. I don't think, I don't think they, yeah. Which, by the way, there's a TV show, everybody. I don't know if that's a spoiler. There's a TV <laughs> show. There's four seasons of it. The first two are excellent. The season three is wild. Season four is interesting. Um, interesting. That's one with Chris Rock? It's just kind of, yeah. Yeah. There's like there's some really cool stuff about it. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, a lot of people thought it fell flat. It's just amazing to me that this guy, oh, what's his name? Noah Hawley. Yeah, Noah Hawley. That's right. He basically just like is making a very good living off of writing Coen Brothers fanfic. Yeah. Like it's <laughs> it's wild. It's just Dude. like, hey, you know this movie Fargo? I want to make the, this An movie. An anthology TV show. As many times as possible <laughs> in all the different possible ways. But, it's wild. Oh my gosh. Like season one is, it's good. And season two is great. Yes. Yeah. Um, season I've two is seen season one. Season two is like the best season of television I've seen in a, in a very long time. Um, yeah, it's I, got, and I, it's I ended got that in stellar tears, cast. Man. Yeah. Season two has got like, it's got, is Kristen that the one Dunst. Dunst? Oh. Yeah. And Jesse Plemons as her husband and, um, Ted Danson 
as like one of the good That's cops. Right. I forgot oh. to. Okay, I'm gonna Wait, watch who, it. I'm gonna oh, watch it. I oh, watch anything to dance. Yeah. Who's the main that cop? He's um, I don't know. He's in a lot of horror movies. Um, yeah, he, I know he's, he's in the like, Conjuring. I think. Oh, Patrick Wilson. I think that's yes, right. that sounds yeah. right. The main guy, very handsome, receding hairline. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's him. Yeah, uh, yeah. I love Patrick that Wilson yeah. is in He's that. Great. As well as, uh, oh, there's that guy from uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. You remember him? Raymond. Raymond. No. No. The other <laughs> guy. His, his brother's brother. in it. Robert. Yeah. The, the, the deep Rob. talker. Yeah. 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 I forget his name. And then there's a bunch of other actors who were all really good as well. Um, yeah, including it's, it's including uh, one of the Colkin brothers. That's Kieran? right. Yeah, Kieran Colkin, yeah. I think. Col- yeah, Kieran Colkin, the one from Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Succession. Succession. Yeah, yeah, really good. Yeah, <laughs> probably the tightest <laughs> one. The one of the tightest, like it's up there with the first season of True Detective in terms of just the tightness of the season. It's not season two. Uh, season one, True Detective. No, and no. season two. Uh, of, okay, yes. In yeah. terms of just like how tight and perfectly crafted it is, very yeah. different tones, as you'd imagine. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, look, look, yeah. Noah Holly's no Nick Pizzolatto. No, definitely not. <laughs> so this is yeah. this is a full throated recommend from oh, two yeah. of the members of Nacho. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. If I might have to, if you I like Fargo, TV. If you like Fargo the movie, then check out season one. Definitely check out season two. I don't know about season three because I enjoyed season two so much. I was like, I don't, I don't care whatever season three has. I might but, just but, end it here. But you don't have to watch them chronologically because it's an anthology show and every season's new. Season well, one and two, you should watch in yeah. order. Yeah. Um, yeah, you should watch it in order. It's worth it. There's okay. callbacks, but nothing. Yeah. yeah, like the main cop. So like season two is a throwback. Right, it goes back by forty years from season one. So season something one, they talk about in season one. Yeah, so things they talk about, and also season one stars the grandfather and father of the main character of season. Sorry, season two stars the grandfather and father of the main character of season one. Okay, yes. that and that's Martin Freeman. No, the, the main, the main the good cop, cop. One. the good cop. Oh, okay, okay. That that woman who was great in season one of Fargo, and I haven't seen anything else since. I just feel like I now have to just watch season one again because I mostly remember Billy Bob Thornton being evil and Martin Freeman being over his head, which seemed very, very like they were for both of them. Yeah. Dude, Billy Bob Thornton was incredible. Like, I, yeah, I love that role. Yeah. Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst do a great job, too, man. Yeah. Dude, I three, three and four are a departure. For I sure. love Jesse Plemons. I love Jesse. I always know what he's going to play because he always plays the same character in every single thing I've ever seen him in, which is always just like the slightly normal person who may or may not be slightly better or way more corrupt than you expect him to be. But he's always like a very normal dude. Whenever I hear Jesse Plemons, I always think of him going, well, how is that in any way profitable for (laughs) (laughs) Frito-Lay? Remember in game night when they're like, yeah, it was like a crazy, crazy deal of Tostitos. It's like, yeah, buy three for four. And he goes, fascinating what an incredible deal uh (laughs) (laughs) okay okay i'll I'll, I'll try and check it out and maybe we'll i'll check back in after i finish them yeah all right if no one has anything else i think we need to close their final question y'all agree 
Yeah. Yep. I'm ready. Jesse, I think this this was one we were crafting this series on detective movies, which this is the first of. Uh, this was one of the indispensable ones. This is one you were like, I will not let this go. We're going to do an episode on it. So I feel like you should go first. This is definitely a dad movie. This, yeah. this defines... It's funny because this isn't like the the definitive uh, detective movie. Um, but this for me still defines uh, de- detective movies. It makes this, this whole world that is so dark, so depressing, but still so full of light, so full of people who are so willing to do what's right that this is defined the whole genre for me. So yeah, this is, this is a dad movie. Wow. Mike. That's awesome. I wholeheartedly agree. Absolutely a dad movie. And, uh, I mean, I, I love, uh, all things Coen brothers. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm just, I, I love it's, it's fascinating. The way they make movies is fascinating. The way they tell stories is fascinating in a certain way. We've got black and white, good and evil worlds with them, but it's in such a, a tumultuous way. They're asking questions that are huge and presenting, you know, about the nature of the world, good and evil. How can you exist in this place? Um, and then they've also got characters that are extremely compelling. Um, you never lose it. The, uh, well in this one, you definitely do not lose the, um, the human aspect because of the the larger questions that it's asking. It's hilarious. And also like confrontational. I it's, it's an incredible movie. I love it to death. Um, and I'm really, really excited for when my kids do get to the age when, when we're able to watch things like this and, and talk about them. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What about you, Vito? Uh, yeah, it is. Even if I'm not, even if I'm not particularly excited to show this one to my kids, I am excited for them to see it and to talk with them. Um, kind of like what Phil was saying a little bit earlier. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm just a little bit, I'm, I'm the weird one here. I, I want to yeah. go a little bit older, which is very strange for, yeah. for me. Uh, and I want to keep to that. And I want to stage that conversation in that way. It is a dad movie because it's just one of my favorite things to, to visit and to check in on. And I'm always astounded by everything that's inside. Um, makes me laugh, makes me cry. Move me, Bob. What do you think, Phil, as, as the, uh, the new dad here? Yeah, absolutely. This is one of my favorite, if not my favorite movies of all time. I, and like Mike said, um, this is a really great, unambiguous story about good and evil, but in a way that doesn't shy away from the uglier aspects. It's not simplistic. It doesn't tie everything up with a bow, but it gives you a good answer on how to be good in a world that is bad. Mm, beautiful. Nicely said. Nicely said. Well, um, from all of us here at Not Your Father's Movies, I'm Vito. I'm Mike. I'm Jesse. And I'm Phil. Take care.